The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, illumine our minds and hearts as we come to your holy word this day. May it be to our edification and sanctification and your glorification. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, today we arrive at the culmination of the long section of Hebrews that begins with chapter that began with chapter seven. Um, do you need one? Yeah. Here we go. It began with chapter 7, if you remember, way back, way back. That was weeks and weeks ago. And it's been focused on Christ fulfilling and surpassing the rites, the rituals, and the atonement of the Old Covenant. By now, you're probably so tired of talking about those words and those ideas. You're like, oh, okay, I get it. This guy's belabored the point, belabored the point. But that's what preachers do, right? Repetition (laughs) is the mother of all learning. So to recap, chapter 7, that is where we contrasted the Levitical priesthood in general with, with Christ and his priesthood. The idea of the great high priest of Melchizedek was brought up that Jesus fits into. And then chapters 8 and 9 have focused on contrasting the Old Covenant in general, kind of the law and broadly speaking the covenant with with this new covenant in Christ and what that means. And it relates, he, he kind of goes back and forth between covenant and worship because they're interrelated ideas. Now, here we are in 10 verses 1 through 18. And this contrasts the repeated animal sacrifices with the once for all sacrifice of Jesus through his perfect human will. So that's going to be a theme that's already mentioned a few times by the writer, but it's going to come to a climax today because Jesus has a human will. It's what makes him a better sacrifice than an animal that is being led to the slaughter. But here Hebrews takes it even a step further. As we will see, the author offers a meditation on Psalm 40. So he returns to a final Psalm. Uh, Remember, he's done a few Psalms in his... uh, as his Old Testament text that he's been preaching on. And he shows that because Christ alone offered God a sacrifice that sprang from a perfectly obedient and willing heart, what we just said, then he alone is able to change human hearts from within, from within. All right, so with that, why don't we look at 10 verses 1 through 4. Now, Father Ted, in your masterful translation, would you read it for us? Oh, sure. 10, 1 through 4. One sacrifice instead of many. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of them, it can never make perfect those who come to worship by the same sacrifices that they offer continually each year. Otherwise, would not the sacrifices have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers once cleansed would no longer have had any consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices, there is only a yearly remembrance of sins. For it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats take away sins. Great. Yeah, that final verse being a pretty um, famous climactic part, if you've heard of, as you thought through the book of Hebrews or heard anyone talk about it, that verse comes up a lot. Anything stand out in your translations that were, was notably different from what Father Ted read? You're reading out of the New American Bible? Yes. New American Bible, yep. I think that was pretty straightforward for, for me as well. I have the ESV in front of me today. It was pretty straight. Anything else? Good, good. It's always good to remember translation is interpretation, meaning the way people translate Scripture. There's a lot of 
uh, interpretive decisions, uh, meaning theological interpretation that goes in. Words can be taken certain ways. Phrases, I know, Jack, you've studied Greek and you know this, is that Greek phrases are all over the place and where you place them in your translation in English, because English has to be a little bit more wooden, is, um, is it, it can change the theology. So often people's theology influence their translation. So having multiple translations in front of you is very helpful. That's why I always ask that question. So much like chapter 9, these verses contrast Christ with the weakness of the Old Covenant sacrifices. Now, in 9, 1 through 10, the main weakness that was mentioned was that the tabernacle was merely a shadow or copy, if you remember that, of God's true dwelling in heaven. Here, the issue is that animal blood was never a sufficient remedy for human sinfulness. So chapter 9, the issue was where the priests are going into isn't the real deal, and it can't affect full atonement. Here, the issue is animal blood is not the real deal. The actual right, the, the, the substance of atonement doesn't work. We could say that chapter 9 made a vertical contrast between heaven and earth, a vertical contrast between the earthly tabernacle and the heavenly reality. And there was this unsurmountable gap. The earthly tabernacle couldn't get you to heaven, even though it was modeled on heaven. Whereas here, the issue is a, now the contrast is horizontal, horizontal, meaning What's going to be talked about in just a second is different stages in the history of the world. Animal blood couldn't do it back then, but now we've come to a point along the timeline of history to where Christ's blood can actually accomplish these things. Now, the writer of Hebrews, if you pay really close attention to these first few verses, he actually seems to have three stages of history in his mind, okay? He says, first... There is this, this time of the law that runs from Moses to Jesus. This is the time of shadow when the rites ritual, within rites, rituals, and shadows or, or uh, sacrifices. So you can see that. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, this is verse 1, instead of true forms of these realities. So we have a time when the law existed, which was shadows of good things to come. So there's a future. But now we're living in the second phase This is a time of grace following the incarnation of of Jesus. And the shadows have become, as he says, the very image, the very image. That is, they are in full focus and clearly seen after ages of blurry copies. So we've moved from a time of shadows to a time of very image. But there's still a third stage. This is the age of the good things to come. And this is the future age of glory when we will possess the current realities in a more excellent and fuller manner. And so the problem with the tabernacle error was that it existed in this shadowy realm, this shadowy, I like, I like the idea of it being blurry. Um, I, wear, I wear contacts and without them, I can't see squat. And so I, I know what it's like to take my contacts out. And I mean, and from here to my hand would be blurry. And it's so... I You're good, yeah. You go. Oh. Oh. <laughs> well, you shouldn't lie in Sunday school, okay? Okay. And so uh, I know what it's like to, at night, when I take my contacts out, put glasses on. And I see something in the corner of a room. Or maybe I'm looking for something. Liz will help me. She's laughing because... I'll be looking at my nightstand table and I'm like, I can't find my glasses. And they are right there and I can't see them. It's right in front of my face. And so anyone who, you know, is, 
especially as people get older. Who knows what my eyes are going to end up doing. So, so in the old covenant, it was worship was blurry. Worship was this shadowy, blurry. You can see a little bit what's going on. I like this image. But with Jesus, you get the glasses and it comes into sharper focus. Ah, now it makes more sense. It's the, I can see the very image, the express image of these shadowy figures. The blurriness has gone away. And then even more so, when we get to the eschaton, when we get to heaven, it's going to be even more glorious. Well, how can it be even more glorious? Another good example. There's a great movie, The Wizard of Oz. You've heard of it? Yeah. Yes. And what is so magical about The Wizard of Oz? Does anyone know why it was so, such a big deal? I do, I do, I do. Technicolor. That was it. So it's the first time on the big screen where you're watching a movie as everyone's only ever seen movies. It's black and white. And then, boom, it's in color. Well, I often think that's what the eschaton is going to be like. I mean, there would have been nothing about... The, the story of Wizard of Oz was still the story, whether there was color or not. You would have just had to take in their word that it was a yellow brick road versus the silver brick road. Um, but you would have been like, okay, great, it's a gold brick road. Yeah, that's fine. And, but to have it in color is to add these layers of meaning and dimension and beauty that I think that's what the eschaton is from us. So we're going from blurry to now living where we see it clearly, but not in its fullness, it's black and white, into the full beauty of technicolor uh, big screen uh, in the age to come. And this is why the older writes, as he's arguing to his audience, who is tempted to go back, remember, to these old writes, why would you do this? Why would you go back? Why would you take glasses off and fumble around in the dark when you don't have to? You're going backwards horizontally. Okay. The writer states again the main issue with the Old Covenant. It cannot make perfect those who worship under its rubrics. It says this here in verse 1. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Draw near. It can never make those perfect. The goal of worship is to give people access to God. Notice that language. It's, it's, it's language, uh, draw near. That's a spatial language, getting close to God. Or even more, the old rites can never unite people to God. I put this word here, theosis. Theosis is this, is this Greek word that means our union with God, coming together, being one with him. The, old, the goal of worship is to do that, is to bring you into a loving relationship with God. And as the writer of Hebrews has already pointed out, the Levitical system hindered this goal. People could come near, but not too near, right? Depending on who you were, you could either stand right at the gate of the tabernacle, maybe you could go into the tabernacle, maybe only one person once a year could go into the Holy of Holies, but even then, not too near. Lots of incense unless you got, so that you couldn't see the Ark of the Covenant. So there was this, notion of distance of space and it represented spiritual distance between God and people in a full sense. Uh, I always lose my place. Okay, so they couldn't get too near and thus they couldn't be perfect. That is the sin inside of them couldn't be dealt with fully and true inner transformation could not take place. This is evident because the Levitical sacrifices were continually repeated. This is something that's already been mentioned in chapter 7 and in chapter 9. 
But again, he comes back to this point. These sacrifices are repeated over and over and over. And so verse 2 offers this rhetorical question. He pretty much says, if the animal sacrifices of old made worshipers perfect, if the animal sacrifices of old actually took away sin and transformed the inner life of a person, then after one sacrifice, they would have stopped. They would have stopped offering them because it would have been fully efficacious. It would have, its effect would have been fully wrought after one sacrifice. And in particular, they would have had no longer, as my translation says, I think they all say something like this, a consciousness of sins. This means that under the old law, there was an awareness of one's sinfulness as well as an inability to overcome it. This, the writer never defends this. He never says, now look, under the old law, people felt this way. He doesn't have to because apparently he's talking to an audience that would have agreed with him. You're right, preacher. Under, you know, when we did these old rituals and laws, there was this burden of sin that we could never get rid of. We knew that we were sinful and that these sacrifices were only um, a temporary atonement. They were only partially, nothing dealt with the inside of us, our sinfulness, our consciousness of sin. Under Christ, though, our conscience is clean because we trust in the effectiveness of Christ's blood. There has been a true, unrepeatable transformation for those in Jesus. Now, in verse 3, the author says that in the old rites, particularly in this case, he's mentioning the Day of Atonement, there was only a yearly remembrance of sin, yearly remembrance of sin. The use of remembrance is significant now. First, it has an obvious meaning in that the ritual brought to remembrance the people's sin and their inability to remedy it. So if every year you had to do sacrifice, this, this big, huge atonement sacrifice for sin, you were constantly reminded of your sinfulness and your inability to do anything about it and, and kind of no hope. The only hope you had in the Day of Atonement liturgy was you get to do this again next year. There was no hope. You know, people might ask the question, and I think we actually get to it. Well, what about when we repeat uh, the Eucharist over and over and over? Well, um, the, the point of the Eucharist is that it's, it's pointing forward from this moment to eternity when we will actually be able to be sinless with Christ. There's hope in the future. There's hope. We're, we're moving down the corridors of history towards a time when sin is no more. They didn't have that hope. Instead, their rituals were just constant reminders of sin with no permanent remedy. All right, which I, I think this is a, I think this maps on to a lot of the self-help stuff we read in today's world, which is you just need to do better, do better, do better. You be you. And there is no hope of the ever escaping your never-ending desire to you be you or to be a better person. There is no final end other than you just have to keep working harder and harder and harder. And it becomes so oppressive. All, uh, yeah, it's a man-made religion, self-helpism. So that's the first and obvious meaning is that these rituals brought to remembrance. But second, and perhaps the more significant meaning is that Remembrance is actually a liturgical term in the Old Covenant. And, it, and it's something that signifies covenant moments. So you can think of Jesus. He isn't just saying, hey, I want y'all to remember me when you get to communion. He says, do this in my remembrance. 
This is something meaningful. This is liturgical, sacramental. Uh, it's it's um, it's calling to remembrance a covenant moment that's taking place in the in the present. So God Himself remembers His people and their sins at various points in salvation history. Now this. This doesn't mean that God forgot their sins or forgot his people. It means he's going to act on them. Remembrance carries this this much larger sense of God remembers his people and he's going to do something about it. In the promises of the new covenant in Jeremiah, God, we read, will remember their sins no more. Does God actually forget? No, of course not. But it means he will put them away and not deal with them as they are, you know, in a way that they should be. He will look past them because they're healed and they are forgiven. Thus, the old rites were ritualized calling to mind of the people to God of their sins. And so in a, in a, in a, what that's trying to say is at the Day of Atonement liturgy, the people are reminded of their sins. But it's also a ritualized way of the people of God, of Israel, saying to God, hey, we're a bunch of sinners and there's nothing we can do about it. And God saying, yeah, you've got to kill this animal. And that kind of doesn't do anything about it either. So it was, it's, it's ultimately kind of a depressing ritual is what the writer of Hebrews is bringing out. There's not a lot of hope in it. There's not a lot of glory or beauty. It's just sin upon sin upon sin. When you dig deep enough, we'll be careful because I think we'll get to this is, well, how can you say this when God, is, God himself instituted these things? Yes, go ahead. That's true, yeah. I mean, it always ends in their death so that you may live. Yeah. There's not the, there's there's not the upward, yeah. And definitely Israel had, I mean, you read the prophets, they had this hope, right? I mean, Jeremiah writes the New Covenant passage that there's going to come a time where something about this is going to be be better. It's going to be fuller. It's going to actually remedy our sins. But they couldn't see it, right? They're, they had the blurry eyes. They know it's out there, but they can't foretell where it is or figure out how it's going to work. And so Christ is, the, is this perfect culmination of bringing together. To, to me, it's, it's the death of the animal in trans, you know, and saving people. Get the, it's not passing through death. Where Christ is oh, yeah. passing oh, yeah. through death. That's why it's resurrection. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's so important. Yeah. Because death is finally defeated. And he has passed through death, lives on the other side, which is this promise that his sacrifice is accepted and that the sacrificial system has come to an end because death is no longer needed. It's been met. Yeah, it's good. It's good. And this is all the stuff he's trying to argue. And just how difficult that would be for someone who's only ever known this system. That's all they've ever known. All right, verse 4 is a climactic and crucial verse for the letter. It is the strongest declaration of the writer that the rites of old were ineffective. Animal blood cannot forgive sins, period. At first glance, this could seem to contradict the law itself. I mean, you can go look at Leviticus 4, 5, 19, which declares that animal sacrifice provides atonement. But one must recall that such atonement was provisional and centered not on the power of animal blood, but on the faith of the individual in God's mercy. Final, and then I put your $5 word here, ontological forgiveness slash atonement comes only through Jesus. What do I mean by that? When you read these passages in the Old Covenant, think of Psalm 51, where the writer says, 
what we desire, what, what God desires is not um, animal sacrifice. What he wants is a contrite heart. Animal sacrifice, these rituals in the Old Covenant, it wasn't about the blood doing this mechani- me- mechanicalistic, I can't say the word, like a mechanical, um, mechanistically. Yes, there it is, mechanistically. It's if you do these sacrifices, whether you believe or not, you just sprinkle enough blood, everyone gets forgiven, you go live your life, and then you come back, you sprinkle blood, and you're good to go. It was always about the faith and heart of the worshiper. It was about his heart. It was about his, um, his, his approach to God in the midst of these sacrifices. So the sacrifices became conduits of expressing faithfulness towards God, and that is what God honored. It was never about animal blood having power to overcome sin. Instead, what the writer of Hebrews seems to be saying is that God is teaching his people something, that life resides in the blood, that life through blood is this reality that needs to expand in your mind. So when Jesus comes, you have a fuller picture of what Jesus is doing. And so final, and I say ontological, ontological means at your very being, at the core of your being. The, the, the atonement of animals was provisional. It had to do from day to day or year to year, but it couldn't solve your sin issue. Uh, it could make sure that you were repentant and forgiven in the moment, but nothing solved your sin issue. You are still a sinner inclined towards sin after an animal was sacrificed. Your heart was not renewed. Only final and ontological at the core of your being, that sort of forgiveness, that sort of atonement comes through Jesus. And that's where he leads us next. Why? Why does Jesus give us that in animal blood cannot? Well, a lot of people a lot of people died on the cross. Right. That's right. Oh, we'll talk about it. Let's get there. Verse verses five through ten. Um you want to read again, Father Ted? Sure. sure. For this reason, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Holocausts and sin offerings you took no delight in. Then I said, as is written of me in the scroll, Behold, I come to do your will, O God. First he says, sacrifices and offerings, holocausts and sin offerings, you neither desired nor delighted in. These are offered according to the law. Uh, Through 10. Through 10. No, you're good. Then he says, Behold, I come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. By this will, we have been consecrated through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Thank you. Anything different stands out? Two things stand out. I have the ESV. So it says in verse 5, consequently, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, I think the actual text just says when he came into the world. And this translation is telling you, letting you know, it's, it's Christ. It's talking about Christ coming into the world. And we'll talk about it. He, has, he puts the words of the psalm into Christ's mouth at his incarnation. Interesting. The next is yours, your translation, Father Ted, uses that, um, that word holocausts, which is from the Hebrew word. Um, Allah or Halah, which means to, to lift up or to give up. And that's what the name of these old Jewish sacrifices, the burnt offering, was the Allah or the Halah sacrifice. 
And so this is why what we think of as the Holocaust, as in the one that took place among the Jews in, in, um, in Europe in this past century, they named it the Holocaust because they, they were identifying themselves as burnt offerings to the Lord. So that the Holocaust is a term that predates... No, don't say that. Um, that uh, predates... The term predates um, um, what happened in the mid-20th century. But that's it. It's a, it's a term for one of the sacrifices of Israel. So your translation maintained that word, which kind of makes it uncomfortable to read it and say, oh, well, that's, that's weird. That refers to that event. But for us to know, that's a purpose why they chose it. So my translation just says burnt offerings. I'm sure I think the King James does as well. Um, I'm trying to, anything else stand out in your translations? The only other difference I saw was consecrated versus sanctified. Yeah, that's a good one. I think we'll get there. That's a good one too. I did see that too. Yeah, your translation, Father Ted said at, um, oh yeah, verse 10, and by that will we have been sanctified, yours says consecrated, Mm -hmm. through the holy offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Okay, let's get there. So this section gives the, what we would call positive side of the contrast that was set up in verses one through four. In other words, it explains why Christ's sacrifice is able to take away sin. So in the first section, it was saying it can't take away sin. In this section, it is able. Why? As previously done in the letter, the writer uses the Old Testament itself, a psalm usually, to show the ineffectiveness of the Old Covenant, thus pointing beyond itself to a greater covenant. Psalm 40 is a perfect capstone to round out Hebrews' argument about the superiority of Christ, particularly the efficaciousness of his sacrifice. This is the last kind of Old Testament reference he'll give for the sake of his argument. Verse 5 begins with, for this reason, or my translation says consequently, yours might say therefore, meaning because animal blood can't atone for sin, etc., etc., always good when you see that word. Therefore, for this reason, consequently, it's drawing a conclusion based on what just came before. So animal sacrifice can't atone for sin. Therefore, what does he say? He says when he, or my translation says, when Christ came into the world. This refers to Christ and his incarnation. But why does the author say Christ spoke a psalm when he became incarnate? After all, this psalm probably predates Jesus by some thousand years. This reveals how the early church understood the Psalms as being the voice of Christ, the voice of Christ. As the Messiah and the full son of David, he is the true voice behind the Psalms, especially those with messianic overtones. Have you ever read Psalms and you thought, who could say this? I will ascend the the hill of the Lord. Uh, My heart, I've done no evil. You You will vindicate me like All of these things the church fathers saw that Jesus was the true voice and that we pray them as part of his body. They apply to us because they first apply to Jesus. We could have a whole Sunday school class on the Psalms and in that way. And maybe we will. And so at his incarnation, the Psalms become actualized in him, meaning they become true and they pertain to his life in particular, his mission, his identity. And so if we look at this portion of the psalm that's quoted, Healy, um, the commentator we're looking at, says, Hebrews quotes verses 7 through 9 of the 40th psalm, which have an A-B-A-B pattern, with A expressing what God does not desire and B expressing what God does desire. So here's the verses. So the first line is an A, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. So that's what 
does not desire. God doesn't actually want sacrifice and offering. What does God want be? But a body you prepared for me. Ooh, a body. Okay, well, that's going to become really actualized in Jesus on the cross. A, holocaust, there's that burnt offering word, and sin offerings you took no delight in. But what does God take delight in? B, I come to do your will, O God. So the climax becomes doing God's will, living, Jesus living out God's will in and through his incarnate body. It's really a masterful verse to tie in here at the end. So how can the psalmist say God doesn't desire sacrifice when God himself is the one who commanded them? Ah, this is, I mentioned this earlier. There seems to be tension throughout the entire Old Testament. God requires sacrifice for atonement and as proper expressions of thanksgiving. Yet apart from the worshiper's disposition of love and faith, these ritual acts are worthless. Or worse, God actually condemns the priests in the book of, it's either Micah or Malachi. Mm, I'm going to forget. Micah or Malachi. He, he condemns the priests because they're offering sacrifices. He says, it's not your sacrifices that I don't, you know, you're doing them well, but your heart is so awful and terrible that they stink. Your sacrifices stink. You know, there's the language in the Old Testament that the sacrifices are a sweet aroma unto God. And now he says they stink. They're terrible. Even though they're doing them by the book, right there, God's revealing. It's about your disposition and your heart. And so this is why the psalmist can have these poetic words about, it's not sacrifice that you just want for me. You want me to do your will with this body. You want me to become the living sacrifice. Where do you think Paul gets that idea in Romans 12? He isn't just making this up. Hey, everybody, here's a cool idea I came up with. How about you offer yourselves as living sacrifices? This is, this is baked into Old Testament religion. It just comes to fruition and, and full expression in Jesus Christ, who actually does offer himself as a living sacrifice on the cross, and then we are able to mimic that in our day-to-day lives. Pick up your cross and follow him. You know, if it would have... Another way to say that is pick up your altar and follow him. Let your whole life be a sacrifice. Now, given the context of Hebrews, when these verses are quoted, meaning where it situates itself in the argument of Hebrews, the intended conclusion by our author is fairly obvious. God didn't intend animal sacrifices to last, for they are ineffective. Instead, he prepared a body for the Messiah that would be willingly offered. Now, in verses 8 through 9, the author repeats the key lines from the Psalms he just quoted. It's a, it's, if you think of this as a sermon, it makes sense. If you're reading it, you might be like, why did he just repeat himself? But preachers do this all the time. You read a passage, then you have to refer back to it to bring out the key points. He also offers some of his own comments. He mentions that sacrifices were offered, he says, according to the law. Let's see if my translation says that. Yeah, it says these are offered according to the law. That's verse 8. He's probably wanting his reader to hearken back to his earlier comments about the ineffectiveness of the law itself. So if they're offered according to the law, he's already argued that the law is ineffective, then the sacrifices, ergo, are ineffective. And so if the sacrifices are connected with the ineffective law, then they are also weak. He then comments on Christ's willingness and says a fairly cryptic phrase, I find. This is what the New King James says. He takes away the first that me he may establish the second. 
he doesn't really give context what exactly he's talking about. Thankfully, in Greek, we know exactly what he's talking about because this word first and second carries grammatical gender and it refers back to things he's talked about. And so you can tell uh, in the Greek exactly what he's talking about. He means, this is my paraphrase, Jesus takes away the first system of sacrifice from the law in order that he might establish the second sacrificial system, which is the sacrifice of his own body and blood. And the two cannot exist side by side. They're in competition. And that's a huge point that he's trying to get across to his readers. You can't sacrifice animals and still participate in the Eucharist, the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. But this raises a good question. If you read in the, old, in the, the book of Acts, Paul and Peter and all the early disciples, do you know what they're doing? It says they're going to the temple how often? Daily. Daily. And what would they be doing there daily? Praying. And? Sacri- sacrificing animals, yeah. So it seems to be early on that there is a progression from when Jesus dies and rises in 30, 33 A.D., to when the temple's destroyed in 70, there is this progressive uh, realization among Christians that of who Jesus is, of something like what the writer of Hebrews has written, and that animal sacrifice by this point has become a no-no for Christians, where early on, Paul, Peter, all these people are doing it, primarily, we could say, out of um, missionary zeal. They're wanting to still prove their Jewishness to their Jewish brethren in order that they might win them. But God remedies this whole issue, doesn't he? Because the temple gets destroyed and there hasn't been an animal sacrifice on that spot that I know of. I think the Muslims might have actually done it when they took over the temple mount. But there hasn't been animal sacrifice according to Jewish law and ritual. Uh, how long has that been? 1950 years or something like that? It could be 2015. I think it's 1950, but it's been a long time, a long time. There has been animal... Have I told you all this? If you're interested in looking up what Jewish animal sacrifice probably would have looked like if you have the stomach for that thing, you can look up the Samaritans. You know, the good Samaritan. The Samaritans are still around. There's like 800 of them left. And they live at Mount Gerizim, which is their holy mount, which is in Israel. It's in... um, Remember, Jesus passes through Galilee and he meets the Samaritan woman at the well. You can... That's really close to Mount Gerizim. And every year, they, they had a temple and the Jews destroyed it in the Hasmonean period, which is before Christ. Um, and they, but they're, according to their law, they never rebuilt their temple. And they have models of what it would look like. And it was modeled exactly on the Jerusalem temple. Where am I going with this? Their rubrics allow that they have to do daily sacrifice in their temple, but they can do their Passover sacrifice as long as they're on the mountain. So they do their Passover every year and it's it's a bloodbath. There's all sorts of animals, and it's a huge barbecue. There's lamb everywhere. And so, so they eat it. So it's a big party for them. I mean, it's like a barbecue, but, I mean, you can see they, they still have a high priest. We got to meet when we were in Israel. Who did we meet, Liz? The high priest's brother. And he would shake our hands and say, go home and tell everyone you met a good Samaritan. So it was like, oh, he's, he, he's around tourists a lot. So we got to um, – it was, it was really interesting to see that these people are probably keeping up they're probably keeping more Old Testament Jewish ritual definitely than modern-day rabbinical Judaism is. Really fascinating. And some, the Ethiopians are still doing the animal sacrifice. 
The Ethiopian Coptics? I don't think so, are they? The guys that have the... The Ark of the Covenant? Oh, yeah, well, that's like a weird sect. They're not actually... They might not be Christian. I mean, and there's still sacrifice. They're Ethiopian Jews who are probably doing it. Yeah, and then there's also... I mean, and there's animal sacrifice that takes place in pagan religion all over the world. There's... I grew up in Chattanooga and Chickamauga Battlefield is in my backyard, which is the old Civil War battlefield. And every Halloween, um, Wiccans and various Satanists, oh, I kid you not, they, 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 they sacrifice cats and dogs. And, I mean, there's a, there's a whole thing like hide your cats and dogs on Halloween because the Satanists come and get them and go sacrifice them in the battlefield where all these people died, a cult of death. So I don't know if it's just like angsty teenagers who are doing this or actual pagans, but... Um, Anyway, it was, it was pretty disturbing. And I know that animal sacrifice in India is still very, very common and very, very disturbing. I mean, just... Do they eat their own pets? Well, no. No, they don't eat them. I don't think these ones eat them. No. Okay. Let's keep going. I lost my place. Let's see. Page four. No, I think we're on page three, aren't we? Yeah, page three. I. I? Okay. Oh, no, let's do H. I don't know if I did H. Uh, Verse 10 sums up this entire section. It is by the will of God at work in Jesus that we sinful humans are sanctified, is what my translation says. Yours says consecrated. It's really a word it could mean make holy or, as the commentator says, I like this, made sharers in God's own holiness. You know, consecrated can care. She she actually is using your translation, Father Ted, because she's a Roman Catholic. And she goes against the word and says, I don't like it here because consecrate has this idea of, you know, I consecrate this vase and it's over here doing its thing. But sanctified, if something is sanctified or a person is sanctified, it means that you've been brought into a holiness that wasn't your own. Right? We've all been sanctified. And who sanctifies us? The Holy Spirit. It's by him dwelling in us. So she likes this image and and this translation does it. I don't know. What does King James say? Verse 10. By the which will we are sanctified. This is sanctified. Through the offering of the body of Jesus. Right. So it's nuanced, but the idea is that through Jesus' willing self offering of himself, that's very repetitive, is that we are brought into that holiness, that self will, that, um, that offering, and it becomes ours as well. So this is the argument that he makes. Uh, Here's a quote. The reason Jesus' sacrifice has power to sanctify is that he offered no mere substitute but himself, his own human life wholly given over in love. His sacrifice, therefore, transforms human nature from within. It heals the self-will, pride, rebellion, and unbelief that have deeply wounded human nature ever since the fall. There's the defect with an animal sacrifice. An animal cannot be humble and offer itself, but Jesus can. And through that, he actually alters human nature if we would but participate in his human nature. And where do we participate in his very human nature? At the Eucharist. This is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. All right, Father Ted, you're doing such a great job. Let's finish it out. See if we can critique it anymore. Sorry. 11 through 18. Every priest stands daily at his ministry, offering frequently those same sacrifices that can never take away sins. But this one offered one sacrifice for sins and took his seat forever at the right hand of God. 
Now he waits until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has made perfect forever those who are being consecrated. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, This is the covenant I will establish with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them upon their minds. He also says, Their sins and their evil doing I will remember no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer offering for sin. Very good. Anything stand out in your translations? Notably different? I don't think so. So these verses bring the central argument of Hebrews that's been running since the very beginning of chapter 7 to a close. And it's been all about Jesus' priesthood and sacrifice. Here he contrasts one last time between Jesus and the Old Covenant and neatly weaves in key themes from Psalm 110. Remember, that was the Psalm about Melchizedek that was super prominent at the first part of the book of Hebrews. And he weaves in ideas from Jeremiah 31, the New Covenant passage. After this section, which we'll go next week, we return to a pastoral exhortation, something we haven't seen since chapter 6. Remember, they were kind of like one on top of each other, and now we haven't seen one for a long time. We return to one, and then we kind of move into conclusion of this entire letter slash sermon. Now, verses 11 through 13 restate the contrast already made between Jesus' sacrifice and the fruitless and ever-repeating sacrifices of the Levitical system. However, two additional emphases are added. First, the focus here is on the daily sacrifices of the ordinary Levitical priest, not the Day of Atonement made by the high priest, that sacrifice made by the high priest. Even these, says the writers, cannot take away sin. I I think that seems pretty obvious. If the one big one annually couldn't take away sin, then the ones that have to be done every day are even less effective. But those would have been the ones that the writer, the audience would have been most familiar with, the daily sacrifice, because it happens so much more often. Second, a contrast is drawn between the Levitical priest who stand at the altar and serve constantly and Jesus who has sat down at the right hand of God after making his sacrifice. This echoes the prologue. If we went all the way back to the third verse of the entire book. Well, actually, let's do it. I told us to read it. All right. Verse 3 of chapter 1. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high sitting. By stating that Jesus took his seat forever implies that his work, his sacrifice is complete. To sit in the ancient world indicated rest from labor. It indicated leisure. It was used in poetry and hymns. When someone sits, if you read in the Psalms, God sits and laughs at the other, at the kings of the world. It means he's at leisure. He doesn't, he's not working. It was actually in the ancient world, this is sometimes still done in the Christian, in the ancient Christian church, The people stood. There were no pews, okay? You stood. And who got to sit? The bishop sat and preached because he is sitting representing Christ who is seated at the right hand of the Father and he preaches leisurely. You know what this meant? 
And he just preached forever and ever because he's comfortable. <laughs> the people stood there. Chris Ostom easily preached uh, two, three-hour sermons at times. Wow. And he would just rail the people for two or three hours sometimes. It, anyway, so be, yeah, I know. We're not going to bring that back, right? Y'all said I stand, so that way I want to move on, right? I'm kidding. Sitting was this image of work being done and being at leisure and not worried about your enemies or worried about what's going on in the world around you. But unlike the other priests who must stand daily and repeat the sacrifice over and over, think of the Levitical priests, they're standing all the time. They never get rest from their ministry because it's never ending. Because, here's his point, it doesn't do anything. You have to keep doing it. That Jesus sits next to God alludes again to Psalm 110 and the order of Melchizedek, which is also picked up in saying that he awaits his enemies to be made his footstool. So he's weaving these ideas together. Jesus sits. His work is complete. Um, He is waiting. Now all he must do is wait for his enemies to be made his footstool. This image of, I mean, you can think of an image of a king sitting on his throne and he props his feet up on the neck of his defeated enemies. That is what Jesus is waiting for. God the Father will give him the world as his empire. And who will be the enemy that rests under his feet? It will be death. Death itself will be defeated, says Paul in one of his epistles. And that is what we wait for. That's um, Philippians, I think. Point C. In verse 14, the author returns yet again to the notion of us being made perfect. This has been a constant theme throughout Hebrews. This is his shorthand for the transformation that takes place through Christ in us. So all that we could talk about, uh, forgiveness of sin, uh, turning away from sin, having a joy in doing God's law, all of that is summed up for him in this word, to be made perfect, to be made like God. Healy sees here a climactic conclusion of this entire theme of perfection in Hebrews. So here we go. This suggests that the same three senses of Teleao, that's the Greek word for to make perfect, teleao, that applied to Jesus. Remember, there were multiple times that he talked about Jesus being made perfect. He was made perfect in suffering through obedience or in obedience through suffering. They're also applied to those many children he is bringing to glory. They are made holy, that is us, and pleasing to God. They are made sharers in divine life, and they are ordained priests of the new covenant. This is confirmed in verse 19 below where Hebrews declares that believers have a privilege surpassing that of the high priest of Israel. You and I have a privilege higher than the high priest of Israel. What is it? We can freely enter the sanctuary, the presence of the living God. Point D. The already not yet tension of salvation is actually shown in these verses. Remember this already not yet. You already are in Christ. You're already saved but we still await that final consummation. Already, not yet. Already, not yet. This is all through the Old Testament. We live, as one of my professors in seminary said, we live in the in-betweenness. The in-betweenness is the time that we live in of of already and not yet, in between Christ having come and coming again. So earlier in verse 10, the astute listener or reader, you, you realize that he said, we read that we have been made holy or we have been sanctified. That's a past, completed action. This has already happened in your baptism, in your confirmation. Now in verse 14, it is stated in the present tense. Look at verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all times those who are being, it's present tense, you are being sanctified 
right now in this present moment. It's an ongoing work in your life. This is why we keep taking communion. Now, uh, say in the present, through Christ's sacrifice, the great sickness of sin has been healed in us. But we are now, to use an analogy, we're all in rehab. We've been healed. We've been cured. We've been given the medicine, but we're in rehab. And we are recovering, still progressing towards fullness. So it maps on to those three stages. He has a three-tier understanding of the Christian life. You have been healed. You have been saved. The cure, the medicine's been injected. Now you're recovering, and we look forward to the great day when you are fully whole. So you have been saved. You are being saved. You will be saved. In verses 16 through 17, the author returns to the New Covenant passage from Jeremiah to reiterate his points. The focus is on the two primary blessings of the covenant that God would establish with his people in the final days. First, he would deal with the root of sin in his people. I will put my law in their hearts, so on, so on. They will love me. They will not have to teach each other because it will be in them. This is the perfection that comes about in humans through Jesus' self-offering. We, to have the law in our hearts means we actually desire it. We are we, we actually long to do God's will. And we are, we could say, naturally inclined towards it rather than kind of it being external and being told, you must do this and going, ah, fine, whatever. It's actually a delight. It's a delight. God's law, which is summed up in self-giving love for others, is now ingrained in us through the Holy Spirit. Second, God would remember his people's sins no more. Now, this is kind of a reminder of what we said earlier. For God to remember, as we have said, it's for him to act in light of the knowledge. In this case, it would be for him to punish sins if he remembered them. For God to act, for God to forget his people's sins means the sins no longer stand between him and his people. Likewise, they are no longer a burden upon his people's conscience. And then the last verse of this central section of Hebrews, which runs from 7-1 all the way to this, 8-19. It rings with divine finality. It's kind of this grand conclusion. Because God's people are forgiven in Christ, sin offerings at the temple are pointless. That's been his major argument, it seems. And this is why people believe that the audience in Hebrews was tempted to go back to Jewish worship. Because this brings home his final point. To return to the old rites as the original audience of Hebrews might have been tempted to do, would be a complete insult to God. Because what you're saying is Christ's sacrifice is not sufficient. These people were not necessarily tempted to give up on Jesus, right? They weren't necessarily going to give up their belief in Jesus. They wanted to add sacrifices and rituals to Jesus. And what the writer of Hebrews is trying to argue is that those are pointless the fullness has come. Jesus has it all. And what, a, what an important, applicable message for all of us as we try and find various things that fill the void in our hearts, that add happiness, that um, give us, we believe, joy, but it ends up just being temporary. Just like the atonement rites in the Old Testament were temporary, provisional. You had to keep repeating them or going on to new things, a brand new animal. We have to go from thing to thing to thing to thing, trying to find joy and happiness and, and fulfillment. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, Jesus is the last stop. And you just need to give your all to Jesus. And he is eternal, he is infinite, and he can fulfill 
every desire of the human heart, of the human passion. He fulfills every need for atonement, every issue with sin in God's eyes. He is your all in all. And that is who we put our full trust in. Now, I have a final blurb here that says we were going to read comments about why Christians repeat the Eucharist, despite what we have just read about the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. But I forgot to bring the commentary, so I can't read her words. The gist of it is, in the Eucharist, we are not repeating a sacrifice. We are forever standing at the feet of Jesus. We are forever standing at the feet of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. It is in her language, in the language that's often used, it is not a new sacrifice, but the same sacrifice. It is Jesus brought forward for us, given to us. We never move beyond the feet of the cross. And that is what we do each Eucharist. It's not the same as a brand new goat, a brand new bull, a brand new pair of turtle doves killed and we move on. This is ever running back to Jesus. And we can do it over and over. And in the history of the church, it's done daily in many parishes. Daily we come to the Eucharist, sometimes multiple times a day. Why? Because it's infinite. There's infinite grace, infinite forgiveness, infinite beauty. We can't exhaust what Jesus has for us. Amen? Amen. And so with that, we go to the altar. Amen.